I think they will have a hard time going back to QE as a monetary policy tool. And that's my own. I mean, I think they might try in the next deep recession. If rates get close to zero, they, they might have to. But QE has been kind of uh, has lost its favor, even among the people who were its, you know, its most ardent proponents back when it was first launched. And so I think the the view about how much QE can can do to stimulate the economy, like the general consensus view now is that QE works as a kind of emergency tool when markets are breaking, but not as a stimulus tool, just as a substitute for zero, you know, for for rate hikes when rates are at zero. And so even I think that tool is kind of, you know, potentially not as strongly in the toolkit as before. So to your point, the Fed will be more powerless in the next downturn to be able to, to stimulate things. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. We frequently commented on this program that it's hard to be an investor over recent years because central planning policy has been by far the biggest driver of price action. Instead, we're forced to be speculators placing our bets based on what we think those few policymakers will decide to do next. Now, last week's near-death moment for British pension funds is a classic example of how a change in policy can disrupt everything in a heartbeat. So we should try to get the best bead we can on where policy is most likely headed. To this end, Wealthion has recently spoken to former Fed senior economist Lacey Hunt and former Fed advisor Danielle DiMartino Booth. But today we have the good fortune of adding respected journalist Pedro da Costa to that list. Pedro has spent the past 20 years covering central bank policies for publications such as Reuters, The Wall Street Journal, and now MNI Market News. Pedro, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's wonderful. And it's great to have you uh, here for the first time on the program. I hope it's the first of many repeat visits. Um, I like to start these interviews just at a really high level, Pedro, and feel free to answer this any way you like. But what's your current assessment of the global economy and the financial markets? Uh, I think we're at a kind of dangerous and pivotal moment, to be honest. Uh, there are already a lot of macro risks that have been building, given the rapidity of the tightening of Fed policy and, and not just the Fed, but policy from central banks around the world is being tightened at kind of record speeds. And there were a lot of tensions already about you know, the macro risks and the potential for unemployment to rise, the potential for emerging markets to have food crises or and or debt crises. Uh, but now we're talking about financial instability, as you referenced in the intro, right at the heart of the global financial system, right in the UK in a, in a major developed economy. And, uh, and so I think we're seeing the first inklings of, uh, of some, some troublesome times ahead. Okay. Um, and we hear a lot that uh, the central banks are going to tighten until something breaks. We might be seeing some of those first fracture lines here. That said, let me um, let me toss another general question up to you here, which is, what's your current assessment of Fed policy right now? Is it the right policy for the times we're in? Or do you think we should be doing something, the Fed should be doing something different than it's doing right now? Well, to, to be honest, in my current role, 
telling the fit, you know, telling the world whether the fit is right or wrong is not really my, my position. What I can tell you is, is sort of where I think they are in the cycle, right? They, they reacted too slowly by their own admission to the inflation that, uh, that started to take over at the end of 2021. And I think in playing catch up, they've had to reestablish their credibility by saying, we're going to tighten no matter what, to your point, we're going to tighten until something breaks. And we don't even know, you know, kind of what category of something that has to be, because a few things, as you mentioned, have already broken. And so I think the Fed is very resolute at the moment to keep going, even in the face of economic weakness, even in the face of potential rises in unemployment and worsening in economic conditions here, even in the face of a fairly deep recession, potentially. Uh, but it is a big question mark as to what kind of financial disruptions it might take for them to maybe not even pause on the tightening side, but, but maybe take some emergency actions in other areas to stem kind of liquidity crises that might pop up from the kinds of things that we're seeing. Okay. And I actually want to, want to dig into that just a little bit in a moment and what those other tools, those other options might be. Um, but, uh, Okay, but so the the Fed, you know, one can say, uh, you know, central bank policy contributed, um, maybe in a big way. We can argue on on, on the magnitude, but but contributed to the inflation uh, that we're dealing with right now. Uh, by its own admission, it was slow to respond to that. Um, now it's trying to make up for lost time. Um, the Fed is is risking, as you said, you're saying. Um, uh, the more the more aggressive it is, the more it risks some sort of systemic instability. And the Fed is telling us right now, at least, hey, we're 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 playing for the soft landing. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna thread this needle, and we're gonna we're gonna bring inflation under control without you know sending the system into a massive tailspin. Um, that's what the Fed is saying. Uh, we look at the Fed's past record of predictions, and honestly, it's not great. Um, so my question for you is, what's your level of confidence here that the Fed, you know, Powell and his team can get it right here, that they can finesse the type of outcome that they're looking for here? Um, how much confidence do you personally have that, that they're going to be able to do this without, you know, either pivoting before inflation gets under control or really breaking something bad well what's interesting is when you say that they're they're still angling for a soft landing i think that if you watch their communication shift carefully enough they've actually have already admitted that a soft landing is quite unlikely they you know in the last summary of economic projections they revised down their economic forecast for gdp down to zero basically yeah zero basically which is as close to i think Martino booth is the one who told told me that it's as close to admitting the a recession as the fed is ever going to get and so they've already kind of taken the soft landing off the table on the macro side but they haven't quite given us any parameters uh with which to judge how they're going to react to potential you know financial debacles if you want to call them that and so that's the next thing that I think markets are going to be watching for now that the conversation has shifted away from, from the macro side and more toward the, you know, where are the losses hiding stage of the game. Right. Okay. And um, I, I think it's important that you, you know, who cover the Fed and has covered the Fed for so long, thinks that they're, hey, you know, they're, they're saying, look, soft landing, probably not going to happen right now. Of course, they're trying to avoid 
the full-blown plane crash here, right? Um, so the question really becomes how how much can they finesse? I mean, and to your point, you know, Powell, Powell used the word pain. He basically said households and businesses are going to have to prepare for pain. And to me, that's that's the closest you'll ever hear the Fed saying, like, I'm deliberately creating a recession to bring inflation under control. Um, so he's trying to get us to kind of gird ourselves here. Um, of course, there's a lot of people that are skeptical of the Fed's uh, ability to really do whatever it takes only because they think the system is so fragile at this point that uh, something really serious is going to happen, sort of like what happened in the UK last week. And I want to talk with you about that in a bit, too, um, where the Fed just might not have a choice. It, it, it may be faced with, you know, a credit seizure, a Lehman type moment where it's just worried about the system actually working tomorrow. Right. Um, so uh, I, I guess first question for you is, is if, and I know I'm asking you to, to, to pontificate here. Um, so I know we're just talking in probabilities and, and hopefully I'll have you back on again as things develop. So you can, you can call audibles for us. But do you feel that the Fed is going to be able to get inflation under control here? Or do you think that some sort of systemic risk is going to force its hand before it can? I think both both could happen in the sense that, I mean, the inflation picture is totally unpredictable and I, I'm not a forecaster and I wouldn't dare to forecast what's going to what it's going to look like early next year. But, you know, you might get a financial instability episode that comes at the same time as a global slowdown, which does in the end take the edge off of the inflation that, right. that we're having, but not in the not in a good way, right? It's the, right. It's, it's the kind of the worst possible way to fight inflation is with a global financial crisis. And anybody hoping for a crisis in order for the Fed to pivot has their, you know, is, is too young to remember 2008 and has their priorities a little bit mixed up. Mm -hmm. And so, but I think to your point, I think the, the, the Fed is, uses these analogies like delicate balancing act, narrow path, uh, and they all work, right? The, the path is, it's, it's ridiculously narrow, right? I thought the analogy I thought about the other day is it's a little bit like, and maybe I thought about it because I was watching so much, you know, uh, hurricane footage, you know, this awful stuff that happened in Fort Myers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of like, taking out the levees from a river to let it overflow, but hoping like only the basements are going to flood, but like anything above ground is going to be fine. That's kind of like the closest that I could come to, right? It's a really, the tools are totally crude and, and, and they policy uh, affects the economy with the lag that they don't know the exact timing of. And so I think it's exceedingly, exceedingly hard for them to get this right. Okay. All right. That's, that's a great context as well. Again, like I said, coming from somebody like you who watches them so closely, I mean, that's a great analogy as well. I'm going to have to steal that. Um, to me, it sort of sounds like, um, you know, a surgeon describing a delicate procedure he's going to, he's about to do, except he doesn't have a scalpel. He's got a chainsaw, right? <laughs> you know, it's just, exactly. There's only so precise you can be with a chainsaw, right? Um, all right. Well, look, um, look, one of the things that is sort of different this time, and, and I hate using that term because a lot of people use that to justify all sorts of things that can't happen. Um, but be, but but prior to you know comparing it to 2008 or comparing it to the Volcker era, which a lot of people are doing these days, um, is the the debt load, right? 
Um, so we have uh, total public debt to GDP of 125%, and that's not even taking uh, the entitlement liabilities, you know, like Social Security and Medicare into account, right, which, which make that number some crazy number here. Um, so it, it, do, do you have a sense of like at what federal funds rate uh, this, the system would just sort of almost mathematically have to buckle at? I have no sense, no such sense whatsoever, uh, because I'm not an economist. But uh, I do have the sense that the, the you know the the terminal rate ceiling is a lot lower compared to the Volcker era, just because of that scenario that you just laid out. So there's yeah. no even even the most hawkish forecasts for how high the Fed funds rate might might go don't match kind of the 1980s uh, gusto because you know, we're just not expected to be able to get there uh, from, a, from a financial perspective, as you suggested, so. Right, and putting it another way, the Fed has a lot less wiggle room around rates than it, it did in previous eras just because of that, correct? Exactly. Yeah, uh, and there are some, and look, I don't know the number either, right? But there are some who think we may have already passed it. <laughs> you know, it, it might've been two something or, or three, and we're now at what, three and a quarter or whatever, and then odds seem, quite good that, that 75 basis points are, are going to be the next hike. And it's not the, not even just the level, it's the speed, right? Like 75 yeah. basis points, you have to keep that in perspective. Like 75 basis point rate hikes are essentially emergency moves. Like when people talk about the potential, we're talking about how, you know, whether or not the Fed can engineer a soft landing and built into that question is the notion of will the Fed commit a policy error by raising too too quickly, right? You could argue the policy error was already committed, and the admission to that is the fact that they're moving in 75 basis point right. increments, uh, because it, they they wanted to be gradualists. They told us that at the beginning of the tightening cycle, they're like, we're going to telegraph everything the way they usually do. But now they're, you know, they're, they don't like to surprise markets. You know, they'll they'll tell you it's 75, but hiking, you know, that much in that small a period of time is is a pretty radical act in a world of this much debt. So it's not just the level, it's the, the speed of change. And so, and that's a great point. And I'll see if I can find the chart. I've shown it in one or two videos before, but it's um, it shows that the rate of change of rate hikes that the Fed is, is undergoing is, is the highest by far in the data set. And um, just to get back to our analogies, um, there's sort of two analogies I've used. Um, one is uh, it, it's, it's sometimes like, you know, throwing a person into a, an Arctic lake, right? You know, you're changing their body temperature so fast, you send them into hypothermic shock immediately, right? And that's, that's, that's what the speed here can do. The other analogy I use that might even be more apt, I think, is, Pedro, I could give you a gallon of water and give you a, a week to drink it and you'd have no problem, right? But if I just shoved that up against your mouth and forced it down your throat all at once, you could drown, right? And that's why the, the, the rate of change here is so important. I see you nodding as I'm saying this. Absolutely, both very good analogies, you know, slightly scary as well, but yeah, exactly. Well, and in the circles that you travel in, you know, talking to policymakers, how concerned are they about this? I mean, they've got to know that they're moving with a, a rapidity that is unprecedented so far. They're concerned, but they're more concerned. I mean, the policymakers themselves are more concerned about inf the inflation expectations genie in which they put so much uh, stock getting out of the bottle and the notion that 
you know, the, the more months that you see an eight to 9% print on CPI, the more likely you are to get uh, some kind of, you know, what they think of as a wage price spiral where people start to, you know, ask for wages that are continuously higher uh, and potentially even higher than the rate of inflation. So that's, that's their primary concern. And so even Loretta Mester, who's the president of the Cleveland Fed, there are still a couple of gradualists on the committee, but the, the majority is now squarely in line with the view that the risk of doing too little uh, is greater than the risk of doing, risk of too, doing much. too much. So okay. that's so their bias is toward breaking something, toward doing a little, you know, toward overdoing it, basically. Yeah, I mean, clearly, when you hear Powell, he's basically saying, "Look, I'm I'm going to sacrifice the jobs market for sure, <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm going to sacrifice economic growth um, to to tamp down the 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 flame of inflation." Here, I mean, he's basically said. I'm, I'm going to take that cost. I'm happy to, I'm, I'm not happy, but I'm, I'm willing to make that, that trade-off here. Here's a question that I've been getting asked a lot recently, and I'm curious to get your input on it, which is, um, uh, you know, if you look at economic growth, um, it's slowing dramatically. Um, that said, I, I just looked at the Atlanta Fed GDP now, now numbers, and it spiked from like 0.5% up to like two something in the last day of the quarter. I haven't fully digested that yet. But we had two contracting quarters beforehand. Um, you know, if you look at at almost all the other economic data, um, it, it is all decelerating, and it all looks like we're we're heading towards recession. There are many that would argue we're we're already in it here, um, and so to a certain extent, you know, a recession will 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 bring inflation down. It'll reduce those inflationary pressures. Um, so there's an argument that that says, oh, if the Fed pivots before CPI is back down to 2%, then it's just going to go back off to the races again. And we're going to be stuck in the cycle we were in in the 70s, where we were having to tighten and then ease and then tighten and ease because uh, we couldn't get inflation totally under control. But the question I'm hearing is, is will it really? Um, because we had you know a decade, basically, of, of generous monetary policy and CPI remained relatively contained. It, it, you know, we had years, nobody really believed it, but we had years of, of you know, CPI below two and central banks saying that they wanted inflation higher than it was. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, if, 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 if we're seeing that um, uh, if the Fed just went back to pivoting, uh, sorry, went back to, to quantitative easing, um, would that drive liquidity that would actually bring CPI up or would it just sort of pool you know up as as uh, excess reserves within the Fed and maybe goose some financial assets um but but I guess my question is is would CPI really slingshot back up without commensurate fiscal policy because that's fiscal stimulus because that's really what seemed to drive the inflation because obviously fiscal stimulus that goes directly into the economy Right, that gets injected directly in the circulatory system of the economy, where monetary stimulus oftentimes kind of pools up. Like I said, sort of in the banking system. Yeah, I think the one. I think there are three main elements that you could, you know, with hindsight, look at as as underpinning this inflation. You had the monetary response, which was, you know, arguably longer than it needed to be by, you know, by some measures. There was the fiscal stimulus in combination with that, and it was a very large sum as well. But then there were the supply side issues, which affect, you know, which affected the entire global economy, and which I think was the most unexpected part 
uh, and potentially the biggest driver of this inflation. So the Fed is just trying to act on the demand side and hoping that the supply side eases, but we actually haven't seen easing on that on that side either. One of the issues for the Fed is that by the change that it made to its framework, uh, by tying itself to kind of outcome-based policy, I think the Fed risks chasing lagging indicators, and maybe it wants to do that uh, because it really wants to break the back of this inflation. But to your point, inflation might be coming down and the Fed is still going to, you know, underlying inflation might be coming down, but the Fed is going to keep paying attention to this range of indicators that shows that the number is, is coming down potentially too slowly for its target. And, and one of the issues is, we were talking about them moving 75 basis points a meeting. They've now basically tied themselves down to that new pace, which is a outlandishly fast pace. And it's a pretty high bar for them to ease off that pace if CPI doesn't cooperate kind of fairly soon. Right. Uh, and so that puts them in a difficult spot because, you know, if you do a couple more 75s, you know, if, if, if after three, three hikes, we're already getting these kinds of bubbling up of financial troubles in the system, I can't imagine what happens, uh, you know, 150 basis points or, uh, or more later. Right. Well, and I want to get to, to that in a minute in terms of like, you know, what do we think a breakage really looks like here? But but to this point, like one can maybe raise the argument that um, inflation may almost kind of take care of itself here. Right. That if if, if um, the Fed has already tightened, um, one element we haven't talked about yet is that uh, you would know better than probably most. But th there is a delay from when the Fed pulls a lever to when you see the impact of that lever happen in the real economy, right? And and I've heard all sorts of estimates, but it, the mean sort of seems to be around nine months or so, right? Yeah, well, it depends. Some say actually even as long as 12 to 18 months, depending. Some Fed officials are now making the argument that, look, because we communicate better than, than they did in the Volcker era and we're transparent and we talk about our policies, our forecast and our SEP gets built into markets more quickly and therefore the transmission is more rapid, then maybe there's a case for that. But that just highlights the level of uncertainty anywhere from like six to 18 months, right? So they really don't know. Right, so they really don't know. So my, my, my point is here is, is um, let, let's assume for a minute that, that the theory I'm mentioning here is right, which is that uh, inflation is gonna kind of take care of itself here without fiscal stimulus uh, coming into the system. Um, and, uh, you know, economy slowing and, um, uh, you know, demand is coming down because of what the Fed has already done. Right. <laughs> and and also just, you know, high prices can cure high prices. People just start tightening their belts. Right. Um, especially if we start seeing, you know, layoffs and stuff like that, too, that'll bring it down even further. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we could continue sliding further into a recession or something breaks or whatever. The Fed could say, "Oh, you know what? We tightened too much. Um, we got to we got to pause, um, or maybe, geez, we really broke something. We got to start stimulating here." Um, but we're going to have these waves of previous seventy-five basis point rate hikes that haven't yet manifested, right? So they're going to keep slamming into the economies for some period of time after that. That could a you know offset whatever the Fed's trying to do. And to my point, if it's just monetary policy, the Fed might be able to keep you know, certain players alive with its bailout programs and whatnot. But if but if the money doesn't get out into the real economy, uh, and a lot of it didn't, uh, it might not be able to really fight 
that. So, you know, could, could, could we have this process where the Fed pivots and yet we don't really see any change? We actually can see a continued devolution for some period of time, maybe measured in quarters. That's a great point, actually. I hadn't thought about it that way, but, you know, if the Fed has its way in their ideal world, their pause, and that's kind of what part of what the Jackson Hole hawkish message was all about. It wasn't just about raising people's expectations for rate hikes. It was about pushing back against expectations for rate cuts next year, right? And so the Fed is hopeful that like it can it can raise to the terminal rate, whether it's four four and a quarter, four and a half, and then just keep it there. And they just hang years. out there. Which, yeah. you know, if if it does that for two years, then maybe the long and variable lags have already, you know, been digested and, and the scenario laid out would not actually be a problem. But if they had to react a little more nimbly or quickly because the economy was really tanking or the financial system was kind of you know falling out of bed then to your point yeah i think it would be difficult and there's another element to, to that as well is i mean now rates are fairly high and if they go all the way to five they do have a decent amount of cushion with which to just cut rates right but they i think they will have a hard time going back to qe as a monetary policy tool and that's my own I mean, I think they might try in the next deep recession if rates get close to zero, they, they might have to. But QE has been kind of uh, has lost its favor, even among the people who were its, you know, its most ardent proponents back when it was first launched. And so I think the the view about how much QE can can do to stimulate the economy like the general consensus view now is that QE works as a kind of emergency tool when markets are breaking, but not as a stimulus tool, just as a substitute for zero, you know, for, for rate hikes when rates are at zero. And so even I think that tool is kind of, you know, potentially not as strongly in the toolkit as before. So to your point, the Fed will be more powerless in the next downturn to be able to, to stimulate things. All right. Well, that that's a super important point, um, which is what I hear you saying is is the era of QE may be ending here. And I'm curious um, as you as you react to that, uh, is there an acknowledgement on behalf of those people that were champions of QE on the policy side that not only does it not stimulate the economy as much as we thought, but it actually really makes the wealth inequality issue worse. Uh, it depends on who you talk to. People have different views. I mean, some people some people definitely agree with that viewpoint. Others focus more on like the actual the, fin the financial the financial stability concerns that arise from the extensive use of QE, right? Which I guess is part and parcel of the inequality, but it's a little bit different. It's about the notion of like reaching for yield to the point that it turns out that pension funds you know become illiquid at the drop of a hat. And so, right. Well, and, and, and sorry to interrupt, but, but to your point, it, QE, well, QE, or at least keeping rates at such rock bottom lows through intervention forces players to go out on the risk curve. A hundred percent. That's kind of the point. They want yeah. they want yeah, it to Yeah, that's the point you're making. Yeah. But the downside is that <laughs> it, it forces them to go out on the risk curve and that when you try, when you try to reverse things, you have even, in, even less leeway, uh, irrespective of the debt levels, just, just because of people's positioning. So. Yeah, it, it's, we're we're pulling analogies out of uh, every crevice today. Uh, there's one I've I've used a lot and, and did previous to this year is 
one of the the faults of of current central bank policy or the policy we pursued over the past you know decade plus is with holding rates so low and intervening um it has been pushing investors out into thinner and thinner ice as they've had to go chase yield and because we went a decade without something quote unquote breaking people have begun or had begun treating the ice with the confidence of concrete right which means you know they're they're wholly unprepared for the moment when the support gets removed the ice breaks and you know they're way out there on the risk curve and then that's where the real damage happens. I see you nodding as I'm saying. Absolutely. This. That's exactly the point that Tom Honig, the former Kansas City Fed chief and also the former vice chair of the FDIC makes to me whenever I talk to him about these these sorts of things is he he really emphasizes that the idea that you have a whole generation of traders and trades uh, and financial plans that are predicated on permanent zero rates. Um, and it's hard, hard to you know, to overstate the risks that arise with that. All right. So when you think of potentially the era of QE as we know it sort of being over, does the end of sort of ZERP, you know, go along with that? Is, is the Fed hoping for a new floor, a higher floor here going forward? I mean, they are and they aren't in the sense that they are, they would love to have a higher floor, but not because it means permanently higher inflation. They're not trying to, you know, right. they're, they're really pushing back. Some people are talking, are saying like, I attended a Brookings conference here in Washington where, where the idea that the Fed might have to settle for 3% was being discussed, right? Because the, the notion is that bringing inflation down to 3% would, would, be, would, would cost X amount of pain, but that that last percentage point would be just so unbelievably painful in terms of the, the the employment hit that it would take to get that right. last percentage point. It's the 80-20 rule that the last 20% is comes at an 80% pain threshold. Exactly. And so therefore the Fed might actually want to think about not doing that. But Jim Bullard was asked about that this week and he pushed back hard against it. He thinks it would be, you know, would undermine the credibility of the central bank that has repeatedly said its target is 2% to suddenly settle for, for a higher target. So. Uh, so I don't think they, they want to be, I don't think so to, to qualify my statement, I think it's the end of QB as a, as a stimulus tool, not as a crisis management tool. Got so it, got I, it. I, I yeah. think they'll pull it out of the cupboard when it's really like, you know, when stuff's really hitting the fan, but, uh, but, but, but the end of ZERP, probably not so much they, you know, they, they historically have had to cut as much as 500 basis points in recessions. And I don't think they'd hesitate to do that. But only if inflation is, you know, either totally back to target or or well on its way. Okay, so um, I'm going to put some words in your mouth, qualify them as you will. Um, there are a lot of investors, mostly the ones that that were pretty disappointed after Powell's Jackson Hole speech, um, <clears throat> but have said, "Yeah, we hear the Fed talking tough, but it's the Fed. It's Jerome Powell. I mean, the Powell pivot guy, right? Like." He's he's not going to have the backbone to see this through when things start getting tight, and uh, and hey, you know when the Fed pivots, that's when I'm jumping back into the markets because everything is going to rise back up again because we associate QE with higher asset prices. It sounds like you would say to that person, not so fast. Like I wouldn't put all your chips on that bet. Absolutely, I think he he's trying. He's going out of his way to prove to the market that he's not that that Jerome Powell. You know, and and 
to, to that point, there, there's a reason why he invoked Paul Volcker, you know, in the Jackson Hole speech. It was, uh, I think, when I when I spoke to Danielle DiMartino Booth, who you mentioned, you know, the most important point that she made to me was that the, the Powell is actively trying to break the back of the Fed foot and make right. markets believe that this is the real deal uh, and that he's going to keep doing it no matter what. So I think that there, it's not a totally unqualified hawkishness because I think the potential for financial instability here at home is greater than it was in the Volcker era because of the discussion that we already had about debt levels and leverage and, uh, you know, uh, a, a long period of low interest rates. And so I think the limit for him, though, might be some kind of true disruption in the in the U.S. financial system that looked like it was 2008 style contagion. It was affecting the banks or a seizure in the treasury market, which has had liquidity issues recently. So, right. But let's take one either those. one of those. Let's say either one of those is what forces him to pivot here. That doesn't necessarily mean like that Fed a Fed rescue plan there is going to send asset prices off to the races. I mean, that's a pretty horrible position to be in, right? There's a lot of things, a lot of bad things that are happening at that stage. It's not a, a super bullish argument for stocks. Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. So I just I, I just want to get that out there, you know, to to let folks know that that Fed pivot doesn't mean happy days are here again. No, you know, it, it probably means the worst. Actually, these days is that they, they've made clear that it's going to take an inordinate amount of pain for them to pivot. And so when we get to that pivot, it's it's not going to be great. Uh, unless unless we get a really benign outcome where inflation just starts to come down in the next few reports and they can slow the you know they can slow the hikes into early next year and and kind of wait and see but well what's so funny <laughs> to me is um i mean i understand the skepticism uh a, a bit you know pal pivot and all that stuff uh, from 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 2018 but um those same investors are the ones that you know crafted their entire investment strategy over the past 12 years on the single phrase, don't fight the Fed. But for some reason right now, they really want to try to fight the Fed, <laughs> right? It's like, you know, for some reason that, that they're willing to embrace that when everything's going up, but when it's going down, they're they're unwilling to, to still hold true to that. But it sounds like what you're saying here is, is, hey, you know, don't fight the Fed. Well, I think it's in part because, and that's, it's also why Powell has to be so strident in his message is because the, the recent Fed has a strong record of intervention, right? And so there's, again, a generation of traders that's conditioned to think that, like, if you just mount, you know, you just raise the pain threshold a little bit, the Fed's going to flinch. And so they've repeatedly had to uh, to push back against that notion um, in this cycle. OK, so let me let me ask you this then, Pedro. I'm just curious, given your somewhat unique position as a guy who just lives in this world 24 seven. How culpable do you see the Fed here for where we are? You know, so much of, of, of what we've talked about, about the current state is because of policy that the, the Fed has made, policy decisions the Fed have made, or, or ways in which it has trained investors. You know, it, it had plenty of opportunities over the past 12 years to try to, uh, you know, disabuse investors of the fact that the Fed will play Santa Claus at the drop of a hat, but, but it didn't. I think that's true, but I think that the inflation itself, it's, it's probably easier to, 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 
find fault with the Fed's, uh, you know, with the Fed put itself, with the, with mm -hmm. that notion of, of continuous intervention for increasingly weaker reasons, uh, than it is to actually fault them for the the inflation surge itself, uh, because I think you know the inflation that we're experiencing is just so. First of all, it's global, and so. It's hard to just point the finger at a single central bank. They're all in the same in the same basket. Even the ones that are actually already in recession, like the UK. Yeah. And so, so sorry I to interrupt, but, but just, just to add in, they were all kind of playing from the same playbook, though. They right? were. They were. Yeah. And I think. But the thing is, they were. The the transitory word was probably a bad choice, but there were there were there was reason to believe, especially if you remember the the macro situation early on, right? The fear was like a deflationary spiral, 14% unemployment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of hard to go from that mindset to like, oh, no, this inflation is totally for real. Having lived through 30 years of, 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 of fighting the other demons, if you will. Right. And so, but I think your, your, your broader point about the, the long-term effects of, uh, of continuous, ongoing, and increasingly large interventions uh, on investor behavior, you know, are probably a fair critique. Okay. Um, I also want to sort of talk about their process for dealing with um, uh, players that get in trouble. Um, sort of the, the 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 penchant for bailing out versus other types of of solutions. Um, before I do that, let's just talk about the Bank of England for a few minutes because that is a really important recent development here, and that is a. a, a a really good example of something systemic beginning to break, right? And um, I won't go into all the details because uh, I've, I've summarized them in a couple of recent videos, but basically uh, the bond or what's called the gilt uh, market in the UK started blowing out and it threatened to bring down the entire UK pension system pretty much, as well as a bunch of other knock-on effects. Um, and the Bank of England, which was just about to embark, I think days away from embarking on quantitative tightening, um, had to abandon those plans and step in and, and at least put in 65 billion pounds worth of, of uh, or buy 65 billion worth of pounds of gilts in the open market just to sort of stop the hemorrhaging. And the dust is still settling from this. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. But what's interesting about that, Pedro, is um, you know when it's an example that, okay, parts of the world are getting close to their breaking point. Um, and obviously raises the question, can that happen here and how close are we to ours? Um, but also it raises the question, can the Bank of England continue to, it's an inflation fighting crusade now, or has it now hit its limit, right? Where it said, look, we, we, we tried, we raised rates for a long time. We were about to do QT, but you know, now we just got to worry about our bond market functioning and that takes priority. And sorry, guys, we're going to live with longer inflation from now on. Well, they're, they're in a, between a rock and a hard place in that sense, because they need the rate hikes to be able to stabilize the pound, right? Yeah. So they can't give up. That's why they, they kind of opted for foregoing QT for now. But there's still all kinds of questions about how functional the market will be once they, you know, once they, because, you know, remember, they didn't just forego their QT. They kind of re-embarked in a mini QE that, that they didn't want to be called QE, where they 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 actively opened a facility to buy they, you know they have a, a guilt purchase program uh, but it's a short-term one uh but they're 
you know, the other interesting part of it that you didn't mention is that this is happening not in the sort of darkest corners of the financial markets, but it's happening at, at something that's supposed to be very boring and, you know, and buttoned up like a pension fund. That's why that's when risks really become troublesome when they hit the heart of the economy like that. Right. So, right. Well, it's, it started to interrupt. I want you to keep going. But but the pension funds there had had, you know, bought collateral on margin. Right. They had levered up and they had levered up because of what we talked about earlier. Right. Is that they had to because rates had been so low for so long, they couldn't get the yield they needed. So they had to lever up their collateral to get the return they needed to hit their actuarial goals. Um, and then, of course, it, it blew up. That's right. So, OK, so um, so I guess my question is, is, is it sounds like you know, you're saying we, we, we don't know. We're going to have to watch here. But I mean. Oh, I'm sorry. As far as we're, how close we are to something like that, I mean, we we really have no idea, right? Uh, they had a very specific, you could say, a, a kind of forced policy error where they rolled out this budget with very little, uh, you know, without approval of the usual authorities that oversee the budgetary process there, uh, and without preparing markets for them. So you could, that's kind of the the case for arguing that this is kind of sector and country specific, but coming on the back of all the tightening that we've just discussed, I think it's, you know, it it could well be a canary in the coal mine for for other types of risks that we that we don't know are out there. Uh, and anybody who tells you they know where the, these risks are hiding, you know, is probably lying because if they did, they would keep it to themselves and go make money off it. Right, long. right. Yeah, exactly. And also the system's just so, you know, it's so complex that when one domino falls in one place, you you just don't know, you know, uh, all the other ones that, that that may fall. That's why this, the fear is a, is a cascading contagion, right? And that's exactly right. what started happening in the UK. Um, and, then, and then I woke up this morning to Credit Suisse trending on Twitter, and I wondered what's this about, right? So that's another little element of contagion. That's when you start to worry is when you start to see random names pop up that seem unrelated. But I also found it, it was, it was interesting that like there was the report, uh, the CNBC article on uh, on Credit Suisse cited a Citigroup report saying there was no reason for worry about contagion. So I thought it was ironic given the role of city in the in the last crisis in, in the global financial crisis yeah no exactly exactly um yeah there's a whiff of sort of you know subprime is contained you know about that statement um yeah and who knows but that's that's the issue here i mean i'm sure as, as stephanie pomboy likes to say you know it's, it's probably not going to be that long before we start seeing some bodies float to the surface where you know these were just the guys that were overexposed on some trade that just blew out because nobody expected you know British gilts to go from, you know, low single digits on their way to 7% in the span of two weeks or so, right? Um, all right. So, uh, but but I guess two last questions on this, or two, two last things about this. What One is what I think is notable about this is it seems that kind of the trigger for this meltdown was also policy related, but it was on the fiscal policy side where the newly elected prime minister, Liz Truss, had basically said, all right, you know what, we're going to we're going to put forth a big tax cut right now because people are so, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're getting so punished by inflation. We got to bring some relief to them. And there was no, you know, there was no um, clarity on how it was going to be 
funded basically except to just assume that that the government was going to borrow to do that so it's kind of it, it was at odds with monetary policy right monetary policy was in the process of stepping on the brakes and here you have fiscal policy saying well we're going to step on the gas right and the markets just got jittery about that and then this whole thing you know started to go um so it it does show that you know policy isn't in a vacuum right you you've, you've the central bank doesn't have all the ability to, to influence what goes on because the, the politicians themselves can come in and either help or muck things up depending upon what they decide to do. Um, so I guess that's question number one. Um, I'd love if, well, let, let's start there. So do you have any, any context to add around that? I mean, it was, I think it was really the speed with which they, they rolled out this plan without kind of preparing markets for it. Right. Uh, and so, but it is interesting that, the, as you said, the authorities were working at odds with one another because, and, and that that's out of the control of, of the monetary policymaker, right? And, and really out of the control of even voters, interestingly, and because that wasn't a sort of, it wasn't a normal election. It was a question of like, you know, uh, Boris Johnson having resigned. And so, you know, it was a, a parliamentary kind of move. And, and the thing you didn't mention also is that they, they try to impose an energy price cap, right? And You're right. that's another factor. And so that's, that's something that in the context of the energy crisis, I think, raises concerns about how high, like once you have one in place, it seems like a cash cow that is going to be continuously exploited and you don't know how high it's going to have to go, which added another element of uncertainty to, to the fiscal picture in the near term. And so, yeah, it's not, you know, I don't think anybody had UK pension funds and in, in fiscal crisis in their, in their, you know, Fed pivot bingo card, but here- I was gonna are. say on their bingo card. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, do you, do, you, do you see the potential risk for something like that happening here in the States? So let's, let's go back to what you said earlier, which is you think that, that Powell is really, he's chained to the wheel, he's, he's lashed to the wheel here. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to stick with this course until we get inflation under control. Um, and, uh, you know, that could end up in a deep recession. Um, and and let's assume that inflation is taking longer to resolve than everybody wants, where you could still have high cost of living, but people are now losing their jobs, whatever. And Congress might feel compelled to move to say, well, we got to do something to help the average person here uh, and could potentially decide to do fiscal stimulus when Powell is trying to say, no, I don't want to do QE and and, and have monetary stimulus. I, I we're, we're trying to let, you know, starve the system of oxygen here. And then Congress goes and tries to do another, you know, 2020 um, style bailout package or not bailout package, but stimulus package. It's a possibility, but maybe our political dysfunction works in our favor in this case, because it doesn't seem like the, the political winds are blowing in that direction. So because think, you think, well, the Democrats will probably lose control of Congress and we'll just have more gridlock. I think that's right. And even if they even if they don't, the likelihood of them passing something, you know, in the second half of the first term is is sort of significantly weakened, I think. So I think the chances of, of some something like that are lower, but that doesn't mean that we won't have financial instability here. Right. So it, it doesn't have to come from the fiscal side. Uh, we could have disruptions that are just related to we haven't even talked about housing, but, you know, yeah. 
the housing sector is is already crashing pretty hard and it could be poised for for even worse uh, performance next year. So we we don't know what kind of financial stability implications that would have. So yeah, I, well, I, so I'm curious. Do you have any? So I, I've I've talked about it relatively recently with um, housing analyst uh, Nick Jurley, um, and I actually spent most of my weekend on Twitter talking about the state of the housing market uh, because I have a hard time just mathematically not seeing it go down pretty substantially from here with with just just there's many factors for that um but just one is the fact that mortgage rates have more than doubled in the past 14 months um so the issue with housing is that it is much more widely owned than stocks are right um you know something like 90% of all financial assets are owned by the top 10% of households right but but two thirds of of households own their home right and so I, I believe the negative wealth effect of a housing correction has a much bigger impact on consumer spending as a result. Um, so, so I agree. But is there anything in particular that you want to say about your concerns about the housing market? That's exactly right. It's just the, the size and scope of the housing market and also its linkages to the financial system are so, just so great. The size of the market in, in terms of trillions of dollars is so large that it just has systemic implications. And people are talking about well, banks being better capitalized this time and underwriting standards having been stronger this time. But uh, I think, as I think you pointed out on your feed, uh, you know, price appreciation was just outlandish over the past year, right? It was just, you know, stratospheric. And so the potential for, you know, for significant losses is there. And I think people are quite unprepared for it. So that would make it worse because it would come as a surprise. Um, Right. And then as gave a little bit of nod to this earlier, but, you know, as, as we continue, continue to see compressed corporate margins from uh, both high input costs with the inflation, but also higher cost of capital as the Fed's out there raising rates. Right. If we go further into recession, if consumer spending constricts because of uh, a negative wealth effect, either from their house going down, their stock investments going down, or just concern for their jobs. You know, if that spending constricts, then corporations have to start laying people off, right? And then, of course, you know, you you almost get into a vicious cycle from there. So, um, I mean, there's just there's just so many shoes that could <laughs> could drop here, that could continue to to take the concerns you're just mentioning here and, and multiply them. So, anyways, all right. So let's assume that we get to uh, some sort of systemic. Uh, breakage point um well, the question i'm trying to get to is 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 um in, in a recent conversation with lacy i i talked with lacy not that long ago and danielle de martina booth also talked with him and i didn't talk with lacy about this i wish i had but she did where um he said hey the he echoed your 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 thoughts that that the fed may actually stop doing qe as a stimulative uh, uh strategy going forward um, and when when Danielle asked him, okay, well, what about what happens if financial stability arises? And he said, well, we actually have tools. There are existing tools for dealing with that that are different than just bailing companies out, which is what the the, the Fed has been, um, you know, preferred to do of late. Um, but he mentioned the discount window, um, which I'll admit I'm not a total expert at, but my understanding of it is is it's, it's sort of a process for helping you know, systemically important companies that that get into trouble. And instead of just letting them go belly up overnight and then 
everybody who has counterparty risk is is dealing with the shockwaves from that. Um, the Fed basically partners up with them and says, you know what, we're going to help this company. And yeah, it may actually be going out of business here, but we're going to make that a slow and gradual process. We're going to work with all the lenders. It's going to be orderly. Um, and you kind of let these companies fail if they must, but it's it's a it's a managed failure that doesn't create the massive shockwaves through the system. Do you see uh, us perhaps using tools more like or the Fed choosing to use tools more like that going forward if we encourage encounter these these breakages? I think what the Fed would opt to do is to have targeted lending facilities like the one that they've they're they're very creative about you know like like tarp and talf and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and like whether it's a commercial paper funding facility, wherever the the, the breakage is, money market funding facility. Uh, the discount window is a little bit different because the discount window is more for like if there's a systemic run on banks, it's it's a place where banks can get unlimited funds. But there's all kinds of issues about uh, about reputation. And once your name is associated with the discount window, there might be a self-fulfilling run. And so they've, mm -hmm. they've had to to create workarounds to make the discount window more palatable to, to borrowers. But that's, if, you know, if we're talking about that, then we're really like, we've really gone down the 2008 route. I think what, what would be more likely is something aimed directly at the treasury market, for instance, uh, just to enhance liquidity over a short period or something aimed at money market funds if they were the ones where the troubles were. Uh, that would be their attempt at, and then I think they would actually be able to, or at least try to keep tightening monetary policy at the same time. Uh, and that would be a difficult thing to do as the Bank of England has discovered. It's difficult to you know, push and pull in different directions at the same time, but it is something that the Fed has indicated it would try to do if there were trouble in financial markets. It would try to tighten through that period by just making liquidity or funds available to specific sectors as needed. Okay, so what you're saying is, is they would continue to try to reduce the balance sheet. They wouldn't be buying assets the way they were in QE, um, and they wouldn't be "quote unquote" bailing out these companies um, with with long term purchases of their distressed assets. You're just saying they would give them access to sort of like short term credit facilities to kind of keep them going until I they think that's fix right. whatever. I okay. think that's right. Although there is a precedent for buying corporate bonds, which, you know, which they did in the uh, during the the post pandemic kind of reaction. So there is there is a precedent and there is a, a facility that they could revive if it were. But then again, it, that would it would have to be a corporate credit crisis for that to become a relevant issue. So it really depends on where the where the trouble arises, if you will. OK. All right. Well, look, um, You've been wonderful at answering all the questions in your area of expertise. I'm going to ask you one that might be a little outside of it. Um, and I'm under it, it's understood here that you're just giving your kind of best guesses here. And this isn't specific financial advice for any individual. But given your current outlook for um, for policy, what you ever what you think is the most probable course from here, um obviously, policy has, has impact on financial assets um, and uh, and certainly currencies as well, purchasing power for currencies. Um, are, are there any asset classes right now that you think are, you know, um, 
particularly wise to consider given where you see Fed policy going or or even the other side of that, ones you would definitely not touch right now, <laughs> given where things are going? I, I wouldn't touch that question, to be honest. It's not the kind of thing I ever answer or or, or even think about. I mean, I think that just broadly speaking, I think that the, the risk off mood of the markets is not that we're not done with that. So you can interpret from that whatever asset class you'd like, but uh, but I wouldn't get much more specific than that. OK. Uh, and so, yeah, let me let me let, let me add to that a little bit more, which is um, from what you've from everything you've told me, it sounds like um, if, if the bullish case in the markets right now rests on Jerome Powell changing policy, you would say, you know, it's not something you expect him to do anytime soon. Yeah, it's a that's a weak case on two on two counts that we've discussed. Right. The right. first is uh, I don't expect him to do it. Two, if he does it, it's for a terrible, terrible reason <laughs> that, that, that is not particularly bullish, uh, you know, at least not in the short term, not until it has enough of a fallout for, for the authorities to react and to actually put a floor under the market like they did in, in March of 2009. And, you know, then there's a lot of, of denouement after the pivot. If, if if the pivot is happening for financial instability reasons, so okay, all right. So let, let me let me pivot then and ask a question um, about currencies, right? Which there's a, a direct link between you know uh, the increase in currency supply that a central bank does and the purchasing power of, of that currency. Um, uh, and interestingly, um, the dollar has really strengthened this year, right, for a whole host of reasons. And I've talked about this a lot with, with a lot of experts, but most notably, Brett Johnson, who has the dollar milkshake theory, which really does seem to have been playing out according to plan this year. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, don't like the dollar and say, ah, you know, the Fed is, is uh, it's just a printing monster, and it's going to destroy the purchasing power of the dollar over time. Listening to you, it sounds like you're expecting a more conservative monetary policy going forward than what we've had in the past. Um, and so in some ways, you know, it, it, it would contradict the, the, the dollar bears argument. Um, and, and obviously, dollar strength is, is totally relative to what other central banks are doing with their currencies. Um, but those guys are going to be even worse. You know, generally, most of those countries are going to be even worse shape than us. Um, so I guess it's a long winded way of saying, do you expect the dollar strength to remain strong for a good while from here, given your perch? I do. I do because of, as you say, it's a relative it's a relative game. So I don't look at it as like, oh, this central bank is being particularly aggressive. So it is going to erode the, the purchasing power of the dollar because the dollar is special in so many ways and it has that sort of golden reserve currency status that affords it, you know, these benefits. And uh, I don't see that, you know, people people thought of the Chinese yuan as the major, as the main potential alternative and the COVID zero policy has put them further and further away from kind of economic global dominance. And so that just puts the dollar back in the driver's seat. And so I don't expect, I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of volatility and fluctuations, but I don't expect sort of dollar hegemony to be eroded anytime soon. 
to. Okay. Um, two last questions and we'll wrap this up. Um, I, I would be remiss, I think, for some of the audience not asking you this question, which is the whole topic of CBDCs. And we don't need to get into it totally here. But I guess my question for you is, is do you see the Federal Reserve issuing um, or do you see the U.S. issuing a CBDC you know, within the next couple of years? I don't. I think that whenever you hear the Fed officials talk about it, they talk about it as something very preliminary and theoretical, uh, and they're always kind of working on on the 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 background discussions of it. But I don't think it has any. And the, but there's a lot of skepticism as well. Like Neil Kashkari has said, I don't understand the problem it's trying to solve, and uh, there's a lot of. I think it's very. Um, early stages for for anything to material to to emerge and i actually i'm not sure that it ever will emerge all right well i gotta ask then okay why why that why that skepticism again because i you don't get the sense that it's a top priority for them or that they see i mean i think kashkari is the one who says it openly but i think it's it might be a fair a more widely held view that like they don't quite understand what what problem it's trying to solve and what what niche it's trying to fill. Okay. And that's interesting just because Kashkari is one of the younger members. I mean, you would think that if somebody kind of got, you know, the digital currency story, it would be the younger guy. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm no proponent of it at, at all, but um, I've always sort of thought about it as sort of a central banker's, you know, fantasy, right? <laughs> you, you have this currency that's immensely controllable. You can, you can be very surgical with it. Um, you can do all sorts of things if you want to stimulate the economy, um, like, hey, we're going to give out money, but it expires in a certain period of time. So you're forcing velocity into the sure. system. Um, even just the benefit of, of, you know, there's so much of the economy right now that is that is dark to the authorities, right? Just the cash economy, right? Sure. All of a sudden, now you know where every dollar is, what it's being spent on, you know how to tax it. It just seems... Again, like a central planner's, forgive my language here, but wet dream. Um, so I'm I'm just a little surprised um, that it seems like the interest is lukewarm at best from how you're describing it. I also get the sense that the major banks don't have any particular, you know, don't really like it. And that would probably carry a lot of sway in terms of like how the banking community influences Fed thinking. So. Okay. Well, again, you know, th this is an ocean that you swim in every day and have for the past 20 years. So what you say carries an awful lot of weight. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in the media, online, who spout opinions about, you know, all sorts of things that we're talking about here. Um, but, but just on this topic alone, you know, you are talking to the most informed people on uh, about this topic because you're talking to the people that actually set policy here. So I, I really do value your... your uh, perspective here. All right. Well, look, Pedro, it has been fascinating getting to crawl inside your brain as the man who talks to policymakers all day long. Um, super valuable, great insights. Um, I really do hope you'll be willing to come back on again in the future and call audibles for us as we're further along in the story here, um, especially if things really start to break um, more visibly here in the U.S. Um, for folks that have enjoyed getting to know you through this conversation and would like to follow you in your work, where can they go? Absolutely. They can go to marketnews.com to check out our Fed coverage, and they can follow me on Twitter at P-D-A-C-O-S-T-A, P-D-A-C-O-S-T-A.
Okay, great. And uh, when we edit this, we'll we'll put up the the URL and the your Twitter handle there on the screen, so folks know exactly where to go. Awesome. Um, if I could also put in a plug for my for my own podcast. Absolutely. Uh, it's called Fed Speak, and I interview uh, senior policymakers at the Fed, some a few former policymakers, senior staff economists. Uh, it's a weekly show, and I really try to get down to kind of, you know, the the latest and greatest twist in Fed policy. So you know, check in and subscribe. All right. So for you complete policy wonks, definitely go listen to Pedro's podcast there. All right, folks. Well, look, as we wrap up here um, very quickly, I just want to remind folks that we are continuing our practice of uh, me writing up my key takeaways uh, from these interviews. So if you want to get mine from this interview with Pedro, just go as usual to wealthion.com slash Adam's notes. Um, obviously a massive question um, to you know, what Pedro and I have talked about is how do you actually invest for this kind of environment where we may be dealing with systemic breakages at some point in time due to, you know, policy decisions the Fed is making right now. Um, if you want to talk to a financial advisor who keeps those type of issues in mind and creating their portfolio strategy, uh, feel free to talk to one of the ones that Wealthion endorses. Just go to Wealthion.com. You'll have a free consultation with them. doesn't cost you anything, no commitment to work with them. Um, and if you have enjoyed having Pedro on this channel, would like to see him back and like to see other great guests of his caliber on this channel, please help support us by hitting the like button as well as the red subscribe button below. Uh, Pedro, thanks so much. Really look forward to having you back on this channel again. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thank you.